Well, I want to begin by expressing my appreciation for the invitation to address you this afternoon, as well as uh, thanking all of the speakers that preceded me today. There's been some good feeding uh, for food here, and we're very grateful for all of that. I now have the opportunity to bring the last address. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing on, on a, a late Saturday afternoon, right again after lunch, but also with a topic that in some ways has some controversy that's attached to it. Uh, all Christians seem, uh, evangelical Christians, are, are unified in the idea that Jesus Christ is going to return. You don't find a whole lot of debate on that. Uh, a bodily return, for sure. But there is debate on when that's going to happen, how that's going to happen, and how particular passages of Scripture are applied to that. My topic today concerns the second coming, but it also concerns the inauguration. And between the two of those topics, it's the second coming that gets the top billing. And the inauguration, there's not a whole lot that's on that. And I think there's a primary reason why that is so, which is what we're going to be looking at today. I'm going to be looking at a text that primarily is used often for understanding the second coming, but actually has more of an application to and a direct, a direct consequence to the inauguration. Let me put up on the screen there several passages of scripture for you that we're going to be just, just an overview regarding the second coming. Uh, all of it discourse, for sure. Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. And there's other texts here. The book of Daniel, selected portions, the book of Revelation, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 Peter 3. All of those you can be looking at and studying. We're not going to be able to hit all of that this afternoon. <clears throat> Most of my message today, though, will be focused on the inauguration part. We're going to get to the second coming, but it's going to come at near the end of what I have to say. Now, let me put this together in this way and use this illustration, that when we elect a president to the United States, we elect them and they are voted in in November, but they really don't take office until January. Now, during that intervening time, there's a lot of things that are going on. There's all kinds of transitions of power that are taking place. What I want to submit to you today is that from the time that Jesus went to the cross and rose from the dead, there is an intervening period of time that's there since that event and also with the inauguration. Now, we want to highlight that the cross and the resurrection are the central things of Scripture. All of the Old Testament focuses down to it, and all of the New Testament focuses out from it. So that is central. And... As I was told in, many times in a, in a, uh, uh, during seminary in a homiletics class that all illustrations are like three-legged dogs. They, they get there, but no one always in the best fashion. So even in my illustration regarding the president being elected in November and taking office in, in January, the difference here is this, that in the United States, officially, that president who was elected in November doesn't have any power to really exercise the office until he is sworn in by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States of America. In Jesus' case, he has all of the power at all time. But there's something else that's going on here that is very central to the, his ministry. And we get a picture of that that comes out of the Old Testament. And so we're going to get right to it. I want to give you a, a couple of passages this morning one, we're going to start with a pagan testi a testimony of a pagan king, and then we're going to flash forward there to the remarks of a prophet in the exile during that period of time looking forward. I'll be in Daniel chapter 4 and also in Daniel 7 just by way of introduction. Hear the word of the Lord. Regards to this pagan king, we're talking here about Nebuchadnezzar, and you remember the story about him that he had set himself up as the ruler of this great uh, empire and began to say to himself that, look at all that I've done. And God humbled him greatly. You might remember that he became as a beast of the field for a period of time, and then he had dew on him. He, he ate like an ox. And we hear these words then in Daniel chapter 4, beginning at verse 34. 
But I, Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of that period, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and will not pass away. His kingdom endures forever. He does according to his own will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? Then these words from Daniel the prophet, chapter 7, beginning at verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the nations, families, and men of every language might serve him. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and will not pass away. His kingdom is one and will not be destroyed. As we note, we're looking at the theme of glory through this conference. And so we want to watch for that unfolding as we continue with this topic. I want you now to turn in your Bibles and let's look at the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. This text is most often thought of as a passage that concerns Jesus' second coming. I'm going to submit to you this afternoon that much of this text has to do with not the second coming, but the inauguration. Hence the connection there in the title of the message. I'm going to be suggesting some things, I think, for some of you that would be new and you maybe haven't heard before. I'm going to ask that you would just simply keep an open mind and be like the Bereans. Search the scriptures to see if these things be so. Let's pick it up at chapter 24, beginning at verse 1 of Matthew's account. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away with his disciples, came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the the age. Now I want you to think about this in regards to the disciples for a moment. Can you imagine them just having these conversations amongst themselves as they're thinking about what was said here? They've got a question in their mind. They're questioning this destruction of the temple and the close of redemptive history that it's closely related in their minds. And in their minds, there's no significant temporal delay between the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of redemptive history. However, Jesus is going to use this opportunity to correct some of their thinking. Now look at the screen here, and you'll see these are, this is a picture of some of the stones that remain of the temple site. Uh, Many, many, many moons ago, I can remember taking uh, field trips out to those stones and and having uh, long sessions with professors and, and examining those and the meaning of some of the things that related to the temple and the studies that we were doing at that time. These stones are known as Herodian stones, and you can identify them uh, from a a geology standpoint by looking at the perimeter of the stone. Herod the Great was the builder, and you always see a perimeter, an edge that was put into every stone, that anything that he had to do with building, it always marked that. So when you're over there to this day, if you're looking at a building, and it has various kinds of stones in it, when you come across and you see those with a border around it, immediately know, oh, Herod had something to do with that. Now, those stones that went into the temple that he built, the ones that the disciples were looking at, were put together with what's called a stretcher and header method. That is, as big as they were, they were handcrafted 
so that they fit together without mortar. And they were so tight that you could not take a playing card to this day and push through them in the signs. So, with that understanding, when Jesus makes the statement that there's going to be a day when you're not going to find one of these stones on top of one another, this had to raise a lot of questions within their mind because the thinking of the destruction of the temple, the central place of all of Judaism, how would that be? So let's pick it up then at verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, my sense here is that as Jesus is beginning this discourse, what we have here is a summary. It's not something that he's talking about that's future. It's something that indicates this is what the period of time is going to look like between his first and second advent. You're going to see all these things happening. What are they? There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be persecutions. There's going to be tribulations. There's going to be false prophets that are going to be arising. There's going to be lawlessness, and yes, you're going to see apostasy. And if we look backwards on the history of the church, including the presence of earthquakes and other kinds of storms, we see this throughout this period of time. Jesus is merely saying, this is only the beginning of the birth pangs. This is something that you're going to see here that's going to be going on. And he hints that that's going to continue until the gospel is preached to all nations. There's a hint here that he's not coming back until that is preached. The word of God, the gospel, it goes forth to all the lands. And the elect are brought in from the four corners of the world. Now, we don't know when exactly that is, but I think here what we've got in these verses 4 through 14 is a general description of this period of time that we're presently now living in and many centuries before we're living in. But then he makes a shift point here in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must not run back and get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babes in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. Now, because of the language that's used in this portion of Scripture, many have concluded that this is a future event. It hasn't happened yet. We're going to look at that in just a moment. But the first thing I want to call to your attention that we're going to spend a few moments on 
is verse 15, the reference here to the abomination of desolation. When Jesus makes that statement, abomination of desolation, he's clearly alluding to the words that were brought forth in the book of Daniel. Let's take a look at those quickly. I'll put them on the screen. You'll see them. Chapter 9, verse 27 of Daniel. And he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wings of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Again, chapter 11, verse 31. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. Again, chapter 12, verse 11. From the time that regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now, generally speaking, most commentators, when they examine the text of Daniel, and I don't have time to go through all of the exegesis that relates to Daniel, but most view this as having happened, that this portion of Daniel was fulfilled. Let me give you the story on this. This would have been fulfilled with the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes. This is with the Greek expansion that's one of the empires before Rome comes uh, to dominate the world at that time. His situation is this, that he's expanding his empire and he is engaged in a battle in Egypt. A rumor begins to circulate in uh, Jerusalem that he was killed and an insurrection arises. When Antiochus hears this, he releases his fury on Jerusalem. And the devastation at this period of time is unbelievable. Uh, there's a lot that's written on this, but he goes in and he destroys the temple. This is what's left of Solomon's temple. He you know, sacrifices a pig in the holy place. Uh, there is a massive killing that takes place. It is a time of abomination. The abomination of desolation standing where it should not be in the temple grounds. But Jesus here in chapter 24 of Matthew is indicating there is a second fulfillment to this. Because this has already happened by the time Jesus and the apostles are on the scene. He's looking forward and he's saying there's going to be a time when this temple is brought down and it's going to be marked by seeing <clears throat> this uh, abomination of desolation that will be standing where it should not be. Let's see, let me just go back and read that quickly. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Even Jewish scholarship generally understood that when Daniel prophesied those things, that actually occurred under the reign of Antiochus. But Jesus now is saying something else is happening here. Something else is going to take place. Now, there's two other accounts in the, in the Gospels. Uh, both Luke and Mark also are recording this same discourse. Luke gives us a little more on this to give us a little more background on what this might look like. Chapter 21 of Luke, verse 20, same discourse. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. I'm going to suggest to you this afternoon that that text is actually referring to a period of time that would happen later, which would be A.D. 70, thereabouts, when the armies of Rome surrounded Jerusalem to subjugate and put an end to the Jewish wars. I'll give you more on that in a moment. But before we do that, let's look at some of the confusion that happens in regards to the language that Jesus is using in the Olivet Discourse. Because many, when they see these texts, for example, like verse 21, tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Verse 29, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky. 
As we read that, we think, well, this can't have anything to do with something in the past, not alone A.D. 70, because these kinds of things are supernatural manifestations that just haven't occurred. There's no historical record of something like this. It must be future, and what Jesus is talking about here is his second coming, the advent, the, the end of the end. But I want to submit to you that this kind of language that's being used this after, that's being used in this text by Jesus is being used in a prophetic sense. There is an imagery or a sense of prophetic utterance that's being used here to describe this, these events in cataclysmic metaphorical ways. Now, it's fair to ask me at this time, well, is there any other examples of this happening in Scripture? And the answer to that is yes. Now, keep in mind that when the Reformation occurred and Luther was busy about the business of translating the Bible into German for the people to read it themselves, part of the criticism on this was, you put this in the language of the people, and then we're going to have every possible sect you can possibly think of because everybody's going to be interpreting it in their own way. Luther's response to that was, it's worth the risk. They need to have the word of God in their own tongue. They need to understand it in their own way. But one of the mantras that came out of the Reformation, particularly from Luther, is and how we interpret Scripture is the sensus literalis, the the literal sense of Scripture. That is, that Scripture interprets Scripture. So it's fair to ask, as we look at this Olivet Discourse and some of the language that's being used here, what are the other places that you might say that this kind of language was used? of events that have already taken place. Let's look at some of those. Consider Exodus chapter 11, verse 6. This is in regards to the Israelites, their final deliverance from the power of Pharaoh and the death angel that would come into the city and destroy the firstborn. Verse 16, verse 6. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before and such as shall never be again. Now, I just want to submit right up front, there have been many battles waged in the land of Egypt. And their prophets talk about many of these conflicts that take place. There's been all kinds of crying that has taken place in that land because it has been pummeled a number of times. But we can be even more specific than that. Let's look forward here. Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 9. Here we have Ezekiel using similar kinds of words. And because of all your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done and the like of which I will never do again. This is spoken of a judgment upon Judah in which one-third of the inhabitants of the city would die through disease and famine and one-third would die by sword. You might remember that Israel divides. There's a civil war that occurs. You have ten tribes in the north. They're known as Israel or Ephraim. And you have two tribes in the south known as Judah or Jerusalem, uh, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom. Here we're talking about that which is happening in Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, that's going on here. Joel also speaks about this same period of time. Chapter 2, verse 2. A dark, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. For there never for Excuse me. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be after it again. And in verse 10, he adds, The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars no longer give their light. Again, this is spoken of, in both contexts, the Assyrian armies of the 7th and 8th centuries that came and pillaged the land and destroyed it. It's already happened. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10. This prophet says, For the stars of heaven and the constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Here we're speaking of the destruction of Babylon, which was fulfilled 15 years later. Again, chapter 34, verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah. And all the hosts of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf, withers from the vine. This is spoken of Edom, which is a small state in the biblical world, but a traditional enemy of Israel, already fulfilled. Ezekiel 32, verse 7, And when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken the stars. 
I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. Here, spoken about the southern kingdom's destruction, there's a play that's going on here. The context is the destruction of Egypt. Egypt was Judah's ally, and because of the destruction of Egypt, it paved the way for the Babylonians to come in. Add to this Amos chapter 8, verse 9. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. This is spoken of the decline of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians. To use language that we would be accustomed to today would be this. Earth-shattering. It was an earth-shattering event. Now, we all know that the earth didn't shatter, but we're talking about something that was big. Something major happened. Powers were exchanged that day. One came down, the other went up. That kind of language is used in prophetic utterances, and that's what Jesus is using here. He's speaking in a prophetic way using language that indicates a tremendous transition is about to happen. And I think there's a lot lost here when this is put all the way off towards the second coming and not realizing something else that has already occurred. Essentially, the A.D. 70 event obliterated the last vestiges of the Old Covenant. You see here a picture on the screen of Jerusalem being surrounded uh, by the armies of Rome. Now, it's also a fair question to ask, but wait a minute, if you're talking about Jesus coming back, my understanding was that when he comes back, it's a bodily occurrence, it's the second coming, everyone's going to see him. Well, if we're not talking about that, in what sense is he coming back? I mean, obviously, it's not the same as being bodily. Again, it's a fair question to ask, well, has there ever been another occurrence like that, where somehow Jesus has come in judgment, but it's not the second coming? And the answer to that is yes, that has happened. Consider Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and that you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds that you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent." Beloved, I've been there. I've been to this site. There is no lampstand. There's not even a candle. In fact, every one of those seven churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, which just scholars just about uniformly would say were talking, talking about the churches that existed at that time, there's no candlestick. There is some sense in which Jesus came in judgment. He walked among the lampstands and made an assessment and warned them, if you don't change your ways, I'm coming and I will remove it from you. I think that happens even today amongst churches. There are denominations and independent churches and local churches that have lost their way. They've lost their first love. And Jesus is still walking amongst those lampstands and there are times when he's removed it. Because of apostasy. What happened in A.D. 70? Well, the siege that we're talking about actually began in 66 A.D. With 80,000 Roman soldiers surrounding the city. The story was this, that they launched a siege against the city. But the first several attacks were repelled. They couldn't get past the fortification of the walls. And after time, they began to decide what they were going to do was they were going to starve the city. But during that period of time, there still were enough people that were able to get out and get back in with food. 
And so more soldiers were brought in. And so the whole city was cordoned off. And so began a long, extended siege. Josephus, the historian writer, writes about this. Because the final siege at the end begins on May 25th, and all resistance ends on September 26th A.D. Josephus, the historian, claimed that 1.1 million people died in that siege, the majority of which were Jews and 97,000 slaves. Now remember when Jesus is going back and forth like a ping-pong ball between Herod and uh, Pilate, and no one really wants responsibility for what's going to happen. Pilate basically looks at this thing and says, look, I don't find anything wrong with him. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. I'm going to wash my hands of it. And then we have this statement recorded in chapter 27 of Matthew, verse 25. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and our children. Here's what Josephus said of what happened behind the walls. The slaughter within was even more dreadful than the spectacle from without. Men and women, old and young, insurgents and priests, those who fought and those who entreated mercy, were hewn down in indiscriminate carnage. The number of slain exceeded that of the slayers. Legionnaires had to clamor over heaps of dead to carry on the work of extermination. But that wasn't all. Historians also wrote of things happening in the heavens, in the skies, and things that were being heard. R.G. Tasker, former professor of the University of London, he writes about this in talking about Tacitus. Tacitus is a Roman historian. He was a senator, but also a historian. Here's what Tasker says. The gods are departing, was the quote. Tasker writes, The type of language used by the Roman historian in the passage from which this quotation is taken is certainly instructive. Contending hosts were seen meeting in the skies, arms flashed, and suddenly the temple was illuminated with fire from the clouds. Of a sudden, the doors of the shrine opened and a superhuman voice cried, The gods are departing. At, that mo- at the same moment, the mighty stir of their going was heard. The destruction of Jerusalem, he writes, of the temple was indeed a divine visitation, which one familiar with the language of Jewish prophecy could describe as a coming of the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It was, in fact, only after the old order ended and the destruction of the temple that world evangelism by the Christian church, now entirely separate from Judaism, could be conducted in earnest. Not till then could the trumpet of the gospel be sounded throughout the whole world. Because what happened was, the Christians remembered what Jesus said. When you see the armies surrounding the city, it's time. You've got to get out. And that's exactly what they did. And when they did, they got scattered throughout the whole empire. Now, there was evangelism going on in other various places throughout the whole book of Acts. But when this event unfolds in A.D. 70, the missionary enterprise that begins to go all over to the four corners of the globe was accelerated. There also is the sense here in which the the division that exists. Some of the other speakers mentioned this earlier today. I'm not sure which one. The idea being that Christianity was almost a subcult of Judaism. When this event unfolds, there is no more Judaism. The central place of Judaism had been destroyed. Christianity now is launched out. Now, if you look carefully on the screen, I've got here a picture of the Arch of Titus. Titus was the general in charge And this arch depicts all of the things about uh, his conquest that need to be noted. And I've got a second close-up shot where on that arch is the destruction of the Jewish temple in A.D. 70. You've got a picture there of the golden lampstand. This is one of the places where we get an idea. Well, what did the thing look like? Well, there it is. It's right there on the arch. 
that depicts this period of time. Continuing through Matthew, picking up at verse 27. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Do you hear that language coming from that Old Testament prophetic utterances? And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from the one end of the sky to the other. Now this is commonly understood as this is the second coming. This is when he comes, all flesh sees him, he gathers the elect from the four corners of the earth. But let's take a look, a closer look at the text. Look at verse 27. The, word, the phrasing here of lightning. As the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, lightning often refers to judgment. And this is a connection again to Daniel. The coming of the Son of Man is a sense in which there's a judgment. There's two, two acts that are being played out here. One is what's going on on the earth, and the other one is what's being played out in the heavenlies. Jesus is coming back to earth in judgment. And as that judgment occurs, and it is done, then we have this event in which he comes up to the Ancient of Days and is presented before him. And to him is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that will not pass away. Look at verse 28. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Okay, The lifeless corpse of Judaism will naturally attract to itself the eagles of Rome. Some see in this that not only that, but also a sense of the the Roman legionnaires, the sign of the eagle being placed on their shields, walking through the temple, desecrating it. Knox Chamblin, a professor at RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary, remarks, he says, the lifeless corpse of Judaism will naturally attract to itself the eagles of Rome. Verse 30, you look here at 30, and it says that, and then you will see the Son of Man, he will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Sometimes this is translated, all the, those of the world, in the new NAS here that I'm using this afternoon, it's translated as earth. The word for world is cosmos. And that is not the Greek term that's being used here. It is the Greek word gay. Now, a fair translation of gay would be earth. It could be rendered that way. But here's how it also could be translated just as easily. Land or country. And all the tribes of the land, all the tribes of the country, Again, in verse 31, what we see then here is the missionary task of world evangelism accelerated as a result of this event. The Christian army is sent out from this point on, some comprised of Gentiles, some Jews, going out and being scattered and going into the world. And then these words, beginning in verse 32 of Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse. Now learn a parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass, will not pass away until all these things take place. Now this text has received a lot of attention especially since 1948 when the United Nations formed a place for the homeland of Israel. And we all know the, the extent of what's happened to that since all the tensions that have been there in the Middle East as a result of that. My sense is that what's being talked about here really doesn't have anything to do with that. Luke, again, gives us some insight on this. 
on this fig tree, that somehow the fig tree is attached to the idea of Israel. Look carefully at Luke 21, verse 29. Same, same dialogue that's going on there. Then he told them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see and know yourself, for yourselves that summer is now near. It's not so much the emphasis is on the fig tree. The idea is on the emphasis that when the leaves are about to spring forth, you know that summer's near. It's the speed that he's talking about. It's going to happen that quick. And Luke adds that. It's not the fig tree. It's the fig tree and all the trees. This is what happens. As soon as they put forth their leaves, you know, well, summer's coming. But then we also have the expression here, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. So what generation is he talking about? I would submit to you that Matthew, again, is the author here, so we want to look at how else has he used that phrasing in his, in his account of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 11, verse 16 But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children. He's talking about the people that he's speaking to at the time. Chapter 12, verse 41, same gospel. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Again, talking about the generation that he was in and those that he was speaking to. Chapter 12, verse 42 of Matthew. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it. Again, Matthew 12, 45. Then it goes, and it takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation people that he's speaking to. And again, chapter 23, verse 36, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Understanding that scripture interprets scripture, what Matthew is saying here is, the clearest reading of the text is, those that are in the hearing of Jesus are the ones that he's speaking to, that it's going to happen in their lifetime. He's not talking about something, it is future, but it's within their lifespan. So he comes in judgment. And then, as the conquering king, listen again to Daniel. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man coming, And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and will not pass away. His kingdom is one and will not be destroyed. The grand conquering king receives the glory that is due him. Is he, has he been in power since the resurrection? Of course he has been. But now there is a judgment. You remember the, the whole book of Hebrews is written to Jews who have confessed Christ and now for whatever kinds of temptations and trials that are in their life are being tempted to go back. And the writer is saying again and again, there's nothing there for you. But in dating that epistle, there's uniform understanding on this that that epistle had to have been written before the events of A.D. 70 because there's nothing said in it about the temple. If they went back to Judaism, the temple would still be there, the central place. By the time we get to A.D. 70, it no longer exists. Now let's flash forward to the second coming. Here we have Paul talking at it about it to the church at Thessalonica, chapter 4 of the first letter, beginning at verse 13. 
But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For he himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Yeah, there is a second coming. Yes, it is a bodily return. And yes, those that have fallen asleep before us are coming back with him. Jesus said, indicating that in the introductory part of this, of this narrative, that the gospel must be preached to all nations, and when that moment is done and the elector pulled in, then this event will happen. But I want to ask this question. With what Jesus did on the cross... With what happened then at the inauguration event when Judaism, the entire system, was obliterated in Jerusalem? And with the second coming itself, what do we receive out of this? Let me take you briefly back into the Old Testament for a moment and talk about the various kinds of divisions that existed with respect to being close to God. You might remember when the nation of Israel was delivered by the power of God and brought out to Sinai. They came to the great mountain, and it was there that God spoke with Moses and delivered his holy law, a law that when it was delivered, they heard it audibly and were terrified a mountain filled with smoke, lightning in the sky. An incredible event. But at that mountain, only Moses could ascend the top of the mountain to meet with God. Later in that account, the elders also commune with God, but they only go about halfway up the mountain. And at the foot of the mountain, on the pain of death, is the rest of the entire nation of Israel spread around it. They couldn't get that close. And that same idea of division and a holding back of presence is apparent then in the construction of the tabernacle, which precedes the temple. You remember the tabernacle was the, the portable way that God moved with his people. This wasn't made with stone. This was made with fabric. In the tabernacle, as you entered it, it had one entrance. The first thing that you would come to is the brazen altar, which burned continually, and offerings for sin were done there. The next thing you'd come to was the golden laver, where the, only the priests would wash themselves. You kept walking in the outer court, then you come to the tent. And at the tent, there's only one entrance. You enter the holy place. It had three pieces of furniture. A golden lampstand, the only light that was there. The golden table of showbread. And then an altar of incense that butted up against a curtain, a very thick curtain, in which divided the holy place from the holy of holies. And behind that curtain was the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the very throne room of God. In that room, only the high priest on the Day of Atonement could go into the holy of holies. While the priests who ministered with him they could go in the outer court and they could also enter the holy place and maintain the candles, uh, the wicks that were on the, ca on the uh, candelabra as well as the, the, the table of showbread and the incense that was being used on that golden altar of incense. But they could not part the curtain. But the people, they couldn't even get into the holy place. They were held out in the outer court. Now, as you move forward in time, we have a progression here that when Solomon's temple is finally erected, it replaced the tabernacle, and in there, it had two courtyards. And you had the same kind of division that existed there. But that temple is completely destroyed with Antiochus Epiphanes. 
By the time we get to the time of Jesus and the apostles, Herod has built the next temple to replace that which, 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 which had been destroyed. Herod's temple had four courtyards. Only the priest entered the innermost court. The next was the court for the men of Israel. This was followed by the court of the women and then the Gentiles, who were God-fearing Gentiles, who had been circumcised. They could come into the fourth court. Josephus records about that court, this It was separated from the inner courts by a stone wall, which forbade any foreigner to go in under the pain of death. What I want you to see is, these various separations were meant to convey the idea that access to God was limited. It was blocked because of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of mankind. So when we understand that and realize that when Jesus hung on the cross and finished all of his work, that is, as theologians refer to it, his active obedience and his passive obedience. Actively, that is, he obeyed every line of the law, crossed every T, dotted every I. Passively, then, he accepts the punitive majors of the law, not for his own sin, but for the sin of his own people. He took the blows. So when he's hanging on the cross, he utters the last statement, it is finished. And Matthew chapter 27:51 records, and behold, The veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Mark 15, 38. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Luke 23, 45. Because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Can you imagine the priests who had the special access to go into that holy place, walking in there as that event unfolded, perhaps within an hour or minutes or a day later, and look and see the temple curtain torn in two? Luke gives us a parenthetical comment that often we read and skip right over this in the book of Acts, but I think it has great meaning. Chapter 6, verse 7 of the book of Acts. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. I'll tell you why. Because when they walked in there, there was an utterance. Oh, my God! Except this was not a profane usage of God's name. It was an act of worship. Oh my God, look what you've done. The access that was held off with all of these divisions was now opened up. As you know, after the time that Jesus rises from the dead and we have the story of the resurrection, the Jews were about the business of covering this up and trying to say that the disciples had stolen the body and coming up with all of these different kinds of plots. The temple was still in existence. And somehow, that curtain was repaired. And it was business as usual. Until the Son of Man came in the clouds and brought down judgment on the old order. Now, in regards to the glory, think about this. That when Jesus is about ready to be betrayed and go through all of this horror, not only of the physical pain, but also of separation from his Father, he is praying what was known as the high priestly prayer of John 17. And in that prayer, this is what he prays. 17, 4 and 5, and 22 and 23. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, 
with the glory which I had with you before the world was, skipping down. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, you and me, and that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Do you realize the, the whole sense here of the idea of separation ends with a sense of unity and closeness that can't be described? It's so intimate that the glory that exists with the Father and the Son and the Son to the Father, Jesus is praying that that the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. That's not a sense that we become God, but it is a sense of the sense of closeness of what we will see. You already heard messages about that today. No one with a human eye could look on this. So that with the destruction of the temple, the work of the cross having been done, the resurrection having already taken place. Jesus paved, the, the way is paved then for this understanding that it's all about him from beginning to end. There's no longer going to be a curtain, we're going to repair it. Or we're going to rebuild it. There won't be one stone left. It's totally destroyed. The idea of intimacy, closeness, Alienation comes to an end because of what happened there. Jesus told them, in your generation, you will see this unfold before your eyes. Now, I don't have time to go through the entire chapter of 24. If you've got more questions on that, I'm going to hang around a little bit after my presentation. I'll be glad to sit and talk with you about them. But I at least want you to see the beauty of what is unfolded here. That what Daniel saw in regards to the Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days was the conquering king. He had done it all on the cross. He had been resurrected. And now the final judgment was done. And we receive this great access that's been paved by his great grace and work in us. Isaiah looked out and saw this. He recognized and saw in a prophetic word the the sense of alienation and sin that we all have had and the need of this one to come and offer himself for us. Listen carefully as we recount this as our closing prayer. And listen carefully to the therefore, which will come at the very end when the servant is blessed for what he has done. Isaiah chapter 53, beginning at verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, but we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But he has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, 
Who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people for whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned to be with wicked men. Yet with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he interceded, yet he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he died for their sins and interceded for the transgressor. To him be all the glory that is due him. When you think about the second coming, think about the coming in judgment first, and then recognize all of that was done. A biblical prophecy fulfilled so that we would have this access to the glory of God. What theologians have called the beatific vision, the beautiful vision, what angels have covered their eyes, we will see because of the conquering king coming home. In Jesus' name.